The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So let's go back to just just the normal daily life practice things. Okay, Maureen. <laughs> I'll be brave. I find the suitability question a bit of a showstopper. In what way? What do you well, mean? Well, it puts me in a state that I look at my life and I, I feel the, 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 my aspiration is more something I feel and I have some knowing of rather than something that I can be very specific about. Mm-hmm. And when I compare my own life with that, they're like this. So there's this stunned feeling of, oh, look at this. And the first couple of days after you had mentioned that, I was very aware of that. I was very aware of, is this in line? Is this in line? But you know, halfway through yesterday and all of today, it did not occur to me at all. That's partly why I'm bringing it up again. <laughs> and it's a profound question. It really is. It's, it's, oh, does this really help? This action that I'm taking right now, does this really help? So it's, if I ask myself minute by minute, I when I have the opportunity to do that, there are things that I can, I recognize that I can leave. Yes. Uh-huh. That I'm, I'm gnawing on all these things in my life. There's these little, little things that I do that have no, they have some amusement um, value or I don't, or it's just ordinary things that you do every day that I don't need any of that. And there's these little, little habits of action and and things that you do because they're social niceties and they really don't contribute to to what the way I would prefer to live my life, the way I intend to live my life. So that it's sort of an embarrassing kind of question because it it lands up, you know, one of those, you take an inventory and it's like, oh, I get a 30, 23% on that one, you know? So... um Again, it's, it's about the exploration and to point out this discrepancy that we all have. Basically, we all have this discrepancy between you know, what, what, what we know is our, our kind of, or have a sense. We may not know, as you say, maybe, maybe not able to articulate exactly what it is. But we know that it is uh, more important than turning on the television or it's more important than looking up something on the internet. But one of the interesting places, again, of tension here, and this does put us into a place of tension. It does put us into a place of things aren't quite matching up. Is to look at what happens when we... um, spend some time letting go of those things that don't seem so necessary. 
and feel the discomfort of that. Because that, I think, is a really important uh, pointer to why we fill our lives up with all these things. There's a place of unknowing, of not knowing. And that's an uncomfortable place to sit in. Um, so, you know, this is a, cha- it's a challenging instruction. <laughs> and I, I'm happy that you pointed to this because it is, I think it's probably what pretty much everyone is feeling. That it's uncomfortable to recognize how much of a discrepancy there is. What happened for you, I'm curious, in the, you know, noticing, oh, this is not, in those couple days or day and a half when you were looking at this and saying, oh, this is not. What happened for you when you let those things go? There was a bit of a relief. Um... And I also acknowledge that some actions that I already take are in support of my intentions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's today I I had agreed to do a a pro bono design for a, a, a mindful group and they finally got back to me with the stuff that I needed to do it. And I thought, oh, this is fun. And it's like, okay, this is in line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is, this is okay. You know, and, and my, my like, oh, th- you know, a fun little thing to do. That, that was a very positive kind of thing. And then I realized that there's also things that maybe I should look at a little closer. It's like when I started doing Vipassana meditation here, I started driving more. So it's like, oh, you know, okay, so here you've got this ecological concern in your life and you've got this clarity of mind and meditation concern and they're sort of colliding. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so it, it, I think that I have to be a little less punitive to myself. I have this tendency to flail myself for a little bit after I discover some something that I'm screwing up. Uh-huh. It, it's a, a, a long, old habit. So um, say more about the, the kind of conflict of interest that you described. Well, I realized with... with um, I live in Mountain View, and... I drive here at least once a week, back and forth, usually by myself. And so I've been coming here five, six years, something like that. And when I first started coming here, if I went to a day long, I would get on the train and I would come and I'd walk up. And I wouldn't agree to carpool with people because it would get too chatty. And I'd get in a different space, a space that I didn't want to be into. And so now I haul my minivan back and forth through Mountain View. It's like, how many times am I doing this week? So it's like, okay, you're doing that. 
As opposed to beating yourself up about it. Right, as, uh-huh. as okay. right, because there's, uh-huh. yes, I, I am using a lot of gas and, and, you know, to come here. So it's kind of looking at priorities, essentially, and where, try, trying to balance priorities. That was another, another exercise I suggested was, um, you know, about priorities. And if you feel conflict, this was one of the, the exercises, if you feel conflict in priorities, um, investigate that conflict. So, you know, this, in looking at um, what you're doing and noticing there may be different priorities and sometimes they, they kind of have run at cross purposes, you don't have to choose or pick, but allow yourself to kind of feel into that conflict. So this is another uh, area of exploration around this clear comprehension of purpose. Is there another one there? Hmm. Anyone else? Yeah, Lauren. It's been interesting. I haven't really spent that much time consciously working on this. Um, But when I started to think about it, I think yesterday was really the first day it kind of kicked in. I was actually really surprised to find that, um, at least in terms of suitability, that especially in terms of speech, that I already do this. I already reflect a lot on whether this is the right time, whether, you know, mm-hmm. any, any of the characteristics mm-hmm. of wise speech. And it used to be a very effortful practice, and I was surprised to find out how often I do this. And even with little activities, little habitual things, or taking another piece of chocolate if it's, you know, there's chocolate out at work, or something like that, there's a way in which I've, I, it's become a very easy, habitual thing to do. And I think um, when I first started trying to reflect on these things consciously, it felt very effortful, so I kind of, I kind of rejected it. Uh-huh. And one of my first thoughts was, I've already done that, and I have. I've done a lot of reflection about my highest aspiration, and I think one of the things that has happened is that it's, um, it's led, like I said, in the last couple of days, I've realized it's led to how a lot of small reflections throughout my day that I wasn't even really aware of in some ways. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the reasons that it feels like it's that there's resistance to sort of going back and exploring it again is that it also leads to it has led me to confront some really big dis- discrepancies and to take some actions that are really big. And I don't think you always want to do that. <laughs> it's like you see this, and it's like, well, there's you know, there's this mismatch, and what are you going to do about it? And I think that it's, you know, there's a way in which um, committing yourself to living with the Dharma as your guide really is a commitment, and you got to have a lot of courage for that. And yeah. I think that in looking at this, it's like. I don't really want more of that. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of done what I can do right now, you know. So it's it's kind of interesting. But one of the things that has been very helpful is the reflection on not self, 
noticing kind of physical contractions around um, clingings or attachments or something and really being able consciously to go back and just say, this is not me, this is not who I am, this is not mine, allows it to really dissipate without having to resist or push away. So mm-hmm. I found that in the last mm-hmm. couple of days mm-hmm. also. Yeah, I was going to, to to move in that direction because on Sunday I explicitly didn't actually talk about that one and said let's focus, you know, for the first couple of days on the the exploration around purpose and suitability and see what happens. And and I know quite a few of you have talked about letting go of listening to the radio and um you know, just kind of simplifying things that you habitually do and, and have reported that that this has been helpful. Uh, That's around kind of the suitability area. Um, But I hadn't talked too much about the clear comprehension of reality, so I I did want to say a few words about that tonight, so I might as well now since you brought it up. Um, You know, the, the teaching on the clear comprehension of reality, as I said on Sunday, is about um, non-delusion, uh, where essentially it is the non-delusion around the notion of who we are, um, that, they're, um, that the way we normally think of ourselves as a, as a functioning independent ide- entity, and a, a me, a, a who I am, that that doesn't exist in the way we think it does. We think of it as being a, a thing, we don't actually know what we think it is, but we know it's there. Um, and it's, uh, it's one of the most challenging teachings in the Buddhist teachings, this notion of not-self, of anatta, uh, because, precisely because that there's a kind of a fundamental misperception that we have around this, that we misperceive ourselves to, to be something, someone. And that fundamental misperception is so deep um, that we don't even question it. It's kind of like we swim in this sea of me and don't even ever think to look at it. And when, because that view is so deeply rooted, then pretty much everything that we experience, everything we see, um, confirms it. Because it's such a deeply held view uh, that we can't see anything that doesn't confirm it. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a catch-22 in a way. That because we so strongly hold to this notion of of I am, um, we can't see information that is pointing to the contrary. I mean, we, we, we see it. It happens to us all the time, for instance, that um, we wake up into mindfulness, the, the moment of remembering I've been talking about. Uh, we wake up into that moment having been lost in thought, who did that? How did that happen? 
there was, I mean, the eye that was lost in thought wasn't thinking about coming back into awareness. There was, there, there isn't, it, it just is a spontaneous arising event. The, the mindfulness comes back into being based on causes and conditions. And there was nobody there choosing, oh, I'm going to be mindful now. It just happened. That happens to us hundreds of times through a day, and probably more. And uh, we don't recognize it as evidence for not-self. We say, I was lost, now I'm back. Kind of likewise with the wandering off, with the getting lost. You know, we sit down, we intend to be mindful. That's what we're thinking we're going to do. And then sometime later we find ourselves waking up lost in a thought. You know, it's like we had the intention to be mindful. That, in, in a way, that was what, you know, you might say, I chose to try to be mindful. And who was it that, just, that went off and got lost in thought? So there's evidence out there for it, and the evidence actually gets clearer the more we pay attention to our experience. We don't actually have to believe this as something that's true. Uh, we kind of have to hold it... Um, we have to hold it as a possibility, perhaps. I mean, if we basically look at that and say, well, that's just flat out wrong, we may not be able to actually take in the evidence. But we don't actually have to believe it. We don't actually have to, grab, to wrap our minds around this truth in order to uh, begin to make some, to touch into some of the evidence and begin to see that this uh, mind-body process, when witnessed, is simply mental phenomenon conditioning, other mental phenomenon conditioning, physical phenomenon conditioning, other physical phenomenon conditioning, mental phenomenon, intentions and actions and physical responses and uh, mental responses to those physical actions, just this cascade of causes and conditions happening. No me doing any of it. We can get into states of meditation where this is very clear, where it is just crystal clear, and there is no doubt that it is true that there is no one here doing anything, just a process of things arising and passing and arising and passing and arising and passing. So on uh, Monday night, I talked about, I mentioned the, uh, the Bihiya Sutta, the Sutta um, where the Buddha describes his teaching in br- brief to a monk. And I mentioned the first part of that Sutta where um, the Buddha gives the instruction around 
how to pay attention to experience. I brought this up under, around the bringing um, attention to understand as it actually is our present moment experience with that actually part really taking away the views, the filters, the beliefs through which we see our world. So understanding as it actually is means meeting experience. In the scene is only the scene. And this is what the Buddha said to Bahia. This is how you should train yourself. In the scene is only the scene. In the herd is only the herd. In the sensed is only the sensed. In the cognized is only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. And then he goes on. He says, When for you, in the scene is only the scene, in the herd is only the herd, in the sensed is only the sensed, in the cognized is only the cognized. So when you meet your experience in that way, which is not a, tall, which is not a small thing, it is, it is a very challenging instruction. When for you, you meet your experience that way, the Buddha says, there's no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This is the end of suffering. So the Buddha gives us instruction about paying attention to our experience. In the scene is only the scene. And the herd is only the herd. Keeping exploring what are the filters that get in the way of being able to notice in the scene is only the scene. Keep looking back, looking back to those filters over and over again. Is there a filter that I'm seeing through here? What filter is being seen through? So the Buddha says that if you get to that place where you are meeting experience as it actually is, this truth of not-self will just become clear. You don't have to believe it. He just asks you to meet your experience and keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. So in this exploration, um, one of the ways to... I mean, we can't stop this process of believing in self. But what we can do is look at what we think is me. And that's what I'm suggesting here. So, at times, at times when you feel like a strong sense of I'm here, I've got, you know, this is me, you know, at times when it feels particularly strong, investigate that. What is it that you are taking to be me? Is it a particular emotion that feel, that's very familiar to you? In my own experience, I found, you know, there's some familiar habits or patterns that I tend to find myself in over and over again that I kind of, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. I do that. Yep, that's me. And um, there's a bunch of those. (laughs) 
and I kind of just assume that they're all the same, but feeling into them, you know, it's just a pattern that's arising. It's just a, um, a group of physical sensations that are pretty familiar, associated with some emotions that are pretty familiar, associated with this belief, that's me. So look into that. Look into that. What did I say here in this? During times when you feel a strong sense of me, see if you can recognize the aspects of the experience that you identify as me. What is it that you are taking to be me? See what happens as you observe them. Now this is, this is, a, this is an exploration that takes a lot of... Uh, it's, an, it's not a it's not a one one hour thing, you know. This is a this is a years long exploration <laughs> around who we take ourselves to be. The other uh, aspect of this is if if you can uh, have a sense of perhaps a little bit of the truth of not me, not mine, not who I am, particularly around emotional patterns and habits. You know, as you start observing emotional patterns and habits, you really start to see how they're triggered by things. You you start to see, um, you know, some fleeting memory go by, and then, you know, you you leap onto that memory and start a pattern going. It's, It's not like we do it. It's habitual conditioning that takes us down the road of the me that thinks, I hate myself. So if you can, um, in finding yourself kind of stuck or pulled into a situation that you really feel strongly identified as me, using the reflection that the Buddhist suggests, not me, not mine, not who I am, can help. It can help to loosen a little bit of the suffering around it, a little bit of the um, um, the clinging, the way we, we really um, believe it to be me. It just is reminding us. No, it's, it's just a phenomenon. It's just a pattern. Just something that's arising that I am taking to be me right now. It's another way to look at it. Just kind of, instead of saying, well, well, who am I? It's like, who am I taking myself to be right now? The who am I is assuming that I am something. Who am I taking myself to be is a different way of framing the question. So, you know, we've got a couple more days in the retreat. So using these um, a little bit to explore this aspect of the clear comprehension of reality to fill out the, the picture on the clear comprehension. So are there any um, comments, questions, any other things? Yeah, Susan. So I understand that 
and I understand how that can be useful and free you from suffering. Um, I have had an experience, you know, I've, I've let go a lot of attachment about my work and, you know, how I'm going to get it done. And, but I think I get a little bit confused um, or, like, how do I integrate that and still get anything done? <laughs> because I'm not attached to it. I don't, it's like I don't care in some way. Uh-huh. I have to kind of let go of the caring or the kind of, you know, really grabbing onto it. I have to hold it with a lighter touch, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I didn't get it done, or, oh, you know, I want to do the householder this week. So, whatever. (laughs) This, yeah, I mean, there can be that, that sense of whatever, um, you know, noticing whether that sense of whatever has some kind of um, self in it <laughs> as well. Um, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> in, in some ways, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you come to the householder retreat or not, as long as you are engaging in the... Uh, exploration around opening the heart and mind, understanding how you um, create suffering in your life. But sometimes when we get into that whatever state, it's actually a kind of a, it's, it's a clinging to a whatever mind. It's a clinging to, well, I don't need to care. Um, there can be a, a kind of a, a legitimate kind of, okay, well, you know, it doesn't really seem to matter whether I do this or do this. How do I choose? That can be, that can be an interesting place. Um, I, I was in that place at one point around seeing, you know, my life, I felt like I could go two different ways. They were both wholesome, both ways to explore in the Dharma, and I didn't see, you know, how do I choose between these two? It's not like wholesome, unwholesome. You know, it's like, how do I make a decision? And I brought this up to Gil, and his answer was very interesting. He said, do you know what you want? <laughs> and that kind of shocked me. <laughs> it's like, does what I want actually figure in here? <laughs> and yes. It does. Um, you know, we're all these beings um, uh, and we have our own talents and our own skills and our own ways of expressing ourselves. And th- there's kind of a natural kind of, I think, a natural way that we can each manifest our talents skillfully in the world. And so to connect back with that, somebody brought in the, the point the other day of that something to do with his aspiration also had to do with something around some talents that he had, you know, to try, to try to merge them somehow. And I think there's something about that as well, you know, to, to look at, you know, where we feel we can 
um, manifest most effectively, I guess, somehow, in the world. And doing things in our lives to support that. Now, if you have two choices where they're both skillful, I mean, if you have a choice where it's skillful, unskillful, that's pretty, that can be clear, right? <laughs> um, two skillful choices? Look into where your heart resonates. I don't know if that's touching into your question so much. but uh. Yeah, I think so. And also, um, I, I thought about it after you started talking, and I think there's some judgment that I have about not being as productive as I once was mm-hmm. because I'm not so driven to work so hard because I've kind of stepped back. So there's this level of judgment that's like, oh, you know, I should be more productive. Or That's a huge catch for us in this culture. You know, we really believe. We've been indoctrinated in the productivity ethic here and, um, you know, the, the, the practice of sitting mindfully and exploring mind and body as it unfolds doesn't look very productive from, <laughs> from the, uh, the standpoint of consumer culture. <laughs> you know, you've got to be producing something that somebody else can consume so that there can be more produced so that we can keep this engine going. Um, so yeah, you know, you pull yourself out of that, and it it can feel uncomfortable. Um, you know that that feeling of I mean, even you know that's something I'm looking at these days too. It's like, no, it's not. It doesn't feel like it's okay to just sit and be mindfully quiet while having my meal. I've got to be reading some Dharma book. You know, I've got to be reading a sutta. It's like, no, you know, I can let that go. Um, that urge for productivity carries right into our practice as well. Um, And that's more self, actually. So, you know, any time you feel a sense of suffering, any time there's a sense of something's not right, something feels off, there is some kind of identity, feeling, some clinging to me, mine, who I am, that's under there somewhere. So if you're feeling suffering, first of all, look into the suffering. But in this exploration, you can also ask yourself, well, who am I taking myself to be? Who am I taking myself to be in this? Am I the one that has to be productive? So that's a that's a great recognition. If you have a job, you, I guess you got to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and that's we, the hard part for me. That's suitability. <laughs> that's suitability, right? That's looking at the suitability aspect. I mean, yeah, we have a job. We need to support ourselves with livelihood. We need to. But in this culture, we have to earn money so we can buy our food, put a house over our heads, etc. It's not unskillful. To do that, the Buddha talks about the happiness of earning a living, right? What is it? It's a righteously gained. There's some phrase he uses: uh, uh, righteous wealth, righteously earned, or something like that. Um, where you know, if that that livelihood is 
uh, not violating the ethics of not killing, not stealing, not lying. It's righteous wealth, not trading in beings, not trading in weapons. You know, it's, it's, it's right livelihood. And we can take joy in the fact that we earn our livelihood righteously. And then the Buddha talks about happiness around how we use that livelihood, that, that we can use it to support the things that are meaningful to us. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we don't want to, you know, get ourselves to the place where we're, like, homeless on the street, having to um, just beg for our living. That's not the way this culture works. So, um, yeah, we do have to use suitability there. Again, it may not be the particular livelihood we have may not be the optimal thing for taking us in the direction of our highest aspiration. But is it suitable? Is it allowing us to earn the living, support ourselves, put a house over our head, give us the food such that we can practice, such that we can engage in this exploration? So, so it's uh, these things are all kind of intertwined: the suitability, the purpose. The... But, but you're right. You know, as you as you come into this exploration around not self, it gets um, confusing, and it gets uncomfortable, um, and it it gets disorienting. It's like, well, how do I, how do I decide? I, I'm not here deciding. <laughs> so thank you, Susan. Yeah, Maureen. I find a bit of a relief in the whole idea of not-self. Mm-hmm. In that, if what I perceive as me is just emerging from a, a set of properties and circumstances set things up and there definitely seems to be aspects of choice that are present so that you can change the stack. So it's, it, 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 it makes it easier to see that you can influence outcomes. And... You're not influencing outcomes. <laughs> right, right. Whatever, yeah. The process is influencing its own, is self-reflective. It yeah. sees that, that there's this stack this way, and if you want it to fall like this, well, you need to stack something over here. And it gives you a dispassionate way to look at that. It does. And I find, too, it, you know, when you actually touch into this notion of not me, not mine, not who I am, it is a huge relief. And there's a paradox here because, um, you know, we can't simply say, well, I'm not here, so what's the point in doing anything? (laughs) What you'll find happens in that case is that your habits and patterns will run the show and then you'll be in suffering a lot of the time. Um, So, you know, we can say about choice um, that... When wisdom is arising, it makes skillful choices. When delusion is arising, it makes unskillful choices. 
And the arising of mindfulness brings the possibility for the arising of wisdom. So, and, and the, other, the other bit about this that you know, I've been reflecting on this aspect, I mean, there's a whole question about free will, and I think, you know, the question about do we have free will, you know, there's no self, there doesn't seem to be control, how does anything happen, and, you know, the Buddha doesn't say, the Buddha clearly says things are not deterministic, but he doesn't address this question of free will directly. But if he did, if somebody had asked him, if one of us had asked him, do I have free will? I think he would say, not a valid question. I don't say one has free will. (laughs) I say choice arises. When wisdom is present, skillful choice arises. When ignorance is present, unskillful choice arises. Yeah, Andrea. What would be the most skillful way to refer at the it that is taking decisions? Because, I mean, we know that if we make the effort with mindfulness over and over again, that increases. And it's like a pearl and another pearl, and then eventually we can get the necklace. Yes. But how... If it's not, if it's not the, the I who's doing the effort <laughs> or, that, or the choice, who is it? So how do we refer to that? I mean, because um, I'm wondering if this is the one place. Do you need to refer to it? Um, well, it, it's more like I was thinking, is this one place where it's okay to use this concept of the me without it being uh, binding well you know we in the conventional language that we speak in we use the term we we use the term i we use the term me the um the buddha used these terms so you know using it in conventional language i mean you you could i suppose in a convoluted say you know the mind body flux that i conventionally call andrea <laughs> but it's a little easier to say me <laughs> um, you know it, in our conventional language we can use it but you know we need to understand how we're using that language so it's fine to say i made a choice you know understanding that it was causes and conditions that came together to uh, support that choice. The other piece that is interesting, I have one minute, (laughs) this is a a long topic, Um, is that, you know, when when we feel like a self, when we feel like me, when that delusion is operating, we have to choose and choose skillfully if we can. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes the habits and patterns are so strong that we don't have that, even that choice to choose skillfully. 
we get to watch ourselves dragged through the mud of our habits and patterns yet again and again and again. But, you know, if, so if we feel like we have a choice, if it feels like a me here and we feel like we have a choice, there is delusion operating. We know, we, we know that. And we have to consciously, as much as we can, choose towards mindfulness, towards wisdom. When we don't feel like we have a choice, I mean, when we are, if we are fully mindful, fully aware, if that mindfulness gets strong, gets continuous, it will choose skillfully. The system is set up that way because we don't want to suffer, actually. And the mindfulness reveals to us the ways in which our mind and body put us into suffering when we pay attention. And then when we see things unfolding, we we recognize that when we are mindful and the mind knows that a particular choice would lead to suffering, it chooses the path away from suffering. So we're really fortunate that our systems are set up this way. They, they kind of lead us towards awakening. But when we aren't awake, we have to kind of point ourselves in that direction. We can't just simply sit back and say, oh, well, I'll just, you know, let awakening take its course and, uh, you know, just space out, do it. Because then the habits and patterns, the delusion, the aversion, the greed will get, just get reinforced. And when we act out of those, they get stronger and stronger. So we do have to kind of make that counter when we feel like we, we are a me. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> and now I've gone two minutes over, so we need to stop. So. Thank you.